0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What if someone wrote a book that imposed patriarchal authority at the expense of patriarchs, redeemed inheritance at the expense of wealth, upheld a patronymic without blessing the name, linked patrimony and childbirth to each other and to God's teaching, while emphasizing the commandment to care for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner? rubbed in the fact that God blesses couples, households, and communities that by all rights should not be blessed, and finally presented a vision of some future kingdom that will include the very people that everyone is trying to avoid. You don't have to ask what if. We have the book in hand and will cover its final chapter today. Richard and I discuss Ruth chapter 4. You're listening to the Bible, as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is
1: Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 92 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I want all of you to try to imagine what it would be like to sit down for a cup of tea in a cafe in Syria. I was going to say Lebanon, but let's tip our hats to the Syrians today. To discuss matters of land, property, inheritance, and title. These are very serious matters for Semitic cultures in the ancient world. Discussions about property, discussions about relationships are interlinked and pertain to social welfare. And so we begin Ruth chapter 4 in the smoke-filled back room of the tent somewhere in Bethlehem where they are sitting down to discuss what to do about all this wealth that needs to be redeemed for the sake of the community. That's what this is about. And so I'll let Richard describe how, yet again, Boaz is taking the high road in this negotiation.
1: Right, what happens in the ancient Near East is that whenever a man has property, it's then passed on to his son. So when you have a son, then they are the ones who are able to inherit that property. So they redeem that property upon the death of the father. Now, what happens if the father dies and there is no son, then you have a problem because then there's no one who can take over that land. And as a result, the widow is in a difficult position. And that's the precise position
0: of both Naomi and of Ruth because there are no sons. The key is that the one who steps forward to redeem Ga'al, to redeem the vacant inheritance or the unused inheritance, and it's interesting, the way it works, it's as though the inheritance is like a fetus in the womb of the widow. And so when another man comes along, it then can become a reality again. It can be redeemed by a close relative. But the problem is that the relative who redeems it, which is linked to the redemption of the one who's being activated with the dead relative's wealth, that person runs the risk of forfeiting a second inheritance that's tied to a separate line.
1: The inheritance Lies with a son who, like you said, is like a seed inside the mother. Now, if the husband dies before it's able to be born, so to speak, then someone else has the ability to bring that forth. And so if someone else were to marry that woman, then that first child, that first son, would be raised up as the son of the dead father. Mm-hmm. And so he would bear the name, bear the inheritance of that father.
0: And that's the key, the name and the inheritance. And this is language that is applied elsewhere in the Bible. It's a big thing because the name carries the reality of the household, and the inheritance is put to work to take care of the people who submit to that name within that household. But the idea is that life continues. It's very important. Right. And
1: technically, anyone could marry that woman, but not anyone has the right to the inheritance right away. The inheritance is supposed to go to the closest relative. You know, we have the Leveret marriage, and Jesus even talks about that, where the husband dies, and so the brother marries the widow in order to raise up a son to that person. Mm -hmm. And raising up a son isn't just, oh, they get to carry the name. They have the inheritance. Like you said, the inheritance and the name are associated. So if somebody marries that widow, that first child is actually the son of The dead father, not you the father, not the new father. So technically, that new father has no son. Technically, that's the son of the dead father. So if the one who marries the widow wants to raise up a son to inherit his own property, he has to
0: have a second son in order to have someone to pass that along to. I think if we allow ourselves to think of the inheritance as the seed, the zerah, if you don't plant the seed, nothing will be produced. It's very simple, just think of it on that level. If you don't plant the seed, nothing will be produced. And you have a social responsibility to produce sons and daughters for the land, for the life of the community, and it's linked to the resources that you have. It's completely antithetical to the way we understand capital in an individualistic society, we think of money as being mine and I can do whatever I want with it when I die. That's not how things work here. And once you understand that, you realize just exactly how loving Boaz is in all of this. I mean, this is the whole parable that Jesus talks about with the Samaritans.
1: You know, what happens if each one of the brothers dies and the wife has no son then, who is married to that woman, who is the one who is the ultimate husband of that person. It gets confusing because the son belongs
0: only to that first father. But Jesus's point is very interesting. He's saying, look, who cares about the inheritance? You're thinking about the wrong inheritance. I'm talking about inheriting the kingdom of God, and you're worried about where the money goes. So in that example that you give, things are turned upside down because... They're arguing about who is whose wife, not because they're worried about the marriage bed. They're worried about the money. And this is a betrayal of what Boaz is upholding here. Now, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Again, he brings out his tea and some candies and says, let's talk. (laughs) They're going to do business now. This is the equivalent of the
1: smoke-filled room. And one thing to note is we have translated here, again, close relative. And this is the one who redeems. And the one who redeems is the one who has the ability to raise up children to this other father.
0: So these are two men. ...who have the potential to actually be men and produce a household or support a household. To the late husband of Ruth. So they're essentially sitting down to discuss who's going to take up this mantle and this responsibility. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down.
1: This is where the real business begins, because he wants witnesses.
0: Now they've got witnesses. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother... And so I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it
1: this new relative who's a closer relative to Naomi than Boaz says, yeah, I'll have the land, I'll buy the land and then I'll take over the inheritance and I'll make sure I take care of the widow, Naomi, I'll buy it from her so she has some way of taking care of herself from the land.
0: It's also important to note here that Boaz began by talking strictly about the land. You can feel that he is being very tactical, not deceptive, but tactical there's this benefit you get this inheritance and the guy initially is interested so now we know you want to buy the field we've established that then boaz said on the day you buy the field from the hand of naomi guess what you must also acquire ruth the moabitess the widow of the deceased in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance now again addressing this question of whether or not boaz is being selfish here technically If he wanted to control the deal so that he could get what he wanted up front, he wouldn't have presented the deal in an attractive way because it's actually Ruth that brings the deal down because that's what jeopardizes your primary inheritance through another son. It's like an investment, like you can get this money but then you lose half of it in taxes. That's the idea, this is taxes and tribute in a tribal setting. It's already questionable to say you have to marry
1: this woman, that goes along with it but say, oh, by the way, this woman is a foreigner and a Moabitess, and naturally these people are looked down upon. Marrying them is very questionable. In the Torah, it talks about how no Moabite is allowed into the congregation, to the seventh generation. We know that there's this prohibition against marrying foreign wives. This is a big catch.
0: It's so interesting to see how the negotiation is going, and to see this potential burden that Boaz is positioning himself to take up. Given all these facts, the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. In other words, it's not worth it for me to take on the responsibility of a Moabitess. And in doing so, to jeopardize my initial inheritance through another line, I won't do it. I'm not going to mess around with that.
1: Right. The first son that he would have would be for Ruth's husband. It wouldn't be for himself. And so he would jeopardize his own because he would have to then have a son of his own to raise up as the inheritor of his own property.
0: Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to elimelech and all that belonged to kilian and mahlon moreover i have acquired ruth the moabitess the widow of mahlon to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace you are witnesses today so he's saying look we have this beautiful woman naomi let's redeem the line of elimelech through her womb Let's redeem the inheritance. I'm going to be responsible, and I say it before all the elders, and you're all witnesses. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. They are adopting the Moabitess. They're integrating the story of Boaz and Ruth into this narrative. It's an anamnesis by remembering all of these characters in the Bible and applying the blessing of their story to this couple, you are adopting Ruth, but also sealing the marriage.
1: I think it's peculiar that the example they bring up, may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah, because Tamar's husband died, and Judah wouldn't give his other son to marry Tamar because he was afraid she was bad luck. So Judah withheld his son to bear up children to her husband. And what happened is Tamar had to fool Judah pretending to be a prostitute. And Judah went into Tamar himself thinking she was a prostitute to bear children. So I think it's an interesting paradigm that Tamar the foreigner who was brought into Judah by subterfuge and who eventually bore Perez, Perez being the forefather of Boaz. Some really interesting stories that are woven in here that we don't have time to go in today. So
0: Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son and here, I think it's important that the Lord enabled her to conceive because I think people will take verse 13 and say, oh, well, did they have sex earlier in chapter three or did they have sex here? But we're not concerned with sex in verse 13. We're concerned with fruitfulness. And I think the Lord giving them a child is confirmation of the fruitfulness of God's commandment at work in Boaz for the community because the seed of Boaz, which is the seed of the instruction that animates him, already produced life. And so even the birth of a son in the womb of Ruth is simply an anomnesis or a confirmation of what was already happening in the household because God's instruction was heeded. So again, People who are interested in the Davidic line will fixate on verse 13 and say, ha, they had a baby. No, the pregnancy took place the minute Boaz was obedient in the land to the instruction of the Lord. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. Notice here you would expect her to say, thank God the name of Elimelech is not forgotten. But what does that name mean? It means my God is king. Who is the father whom Naomi is praising? She's not praising Boaz. She's not praising the name of Elimelech, which technically is restored in this marriage. She is praising the name of the Lord, that his name may become famous in Israel. That is why this story is beautiful. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor woman gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they called him Obed, which means servant. Abd in Arabic, Obed in Hebrew, the servant. This whole story has been about submission and they produced a child whose name means Submission. Submission to God's teaching in the household of Israel, in the land, in the household of Judah, which should reflect God's eschatological kingdom. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Now, what's powerful here is that you have this image of the covenant being restored by a faithful servant of the Torah, taking care of the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. And this creates a context in which the womb of God's people in receiving his instruction, bears fruit unto life. And the author of Ruth is saying, this is the vision for what the Davidic kingdom should be. Now, whether it becomes that is another matter. But it's striking, as you've pointed out again and again throughout the series, that there are all these rules about the purity of the line
1: right you're not allowed to have a
0: moabite unto the seventh generation but yet god is establishing the line of david by polluting it that's why i think pointing out the imperfection of the old testament characters that were mentioned rachel leah tamar and so forth these are the generations of perez in verse
1: 18. perez for some reason the son of The prostitute and the unfaithful father is the one who establishes the line. And then you get the good Moabitess who continues the line and continues the line and pollutes it at the same time in spite of what her husband, who is the hospitable one, who is the kind one, who looks out for the outsider, for the widow,
0: for the orphan. So
1: there's a tension where it's polluted yet purified at the same
0: time. Because... You think you're better than the Moabites, but you're not, yet God has blessed you. I want to say this again. You think you're better than the others, and you're not, and you're not better in a very glamorous, painful way, yet God extends his blessing to you. Because if that were not the case, God would have dumped Jacob Israel, because Jacob was a treacherous person. He did ruthlessly plot with his mother to steal from his brother. He betrayed and lied to his father, yet God kept his oath and took care of him. God didn't remove his care from them, even though Esau was the one who was defrauded. This is meant to undo the sense of entitlement and xenophobia and elitist tribal thinking that is the negative aspect of having these communities that are so self-supporting and so tightly knit. So it's beautiful, it's painful, and it's the story of the Bible. Thanks very much, Dr. Beth. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.
1: The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.